Please be seated. Well, um, perhaps you noticed in Paul's introduction there, uh, there's a lot of omissions. Uh, there's his typical grace and peace, but uh, there's no thanks for them. There's none of this, my beloved, my, none of that. Uh, Paul cuts to the chase with these people. Um, perhaps maybe like a father who has gotten a phone call from mom and the kids have destroyed the house. They're fighting with each other. They're rebelling against mom. And uh, she calls dad and says, rescue me. And uh, so dad leaves work early and he comes home and he comes in the door and it's not hugs and kisses. It's, it's, it's on. And uh, that's the way Paul comes at the Galatians. So let's look again at verse one. Uh, one through five is as nice as it gets until we get to the end. So but look at this. He says, Paul, an apostle. In my uh, translation, it's parenthetical. In some translations, it's between uh, dashes. He says his apostleship, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's very unusual. We'll talk about it. But first, I, I'd like to spend a little time on Paul's biography, okay? And then I want to explore the office of apostleship. It's very important. And uh, along with the context of how Paul uses it, one, and then we'll look at the following verses, all right? So let's begin with the man Paul. Paul immediately identifies himself as the author in verse one. Uh, his audience knew who he was. But I don't want to assume that everyone in this particular room uh, is familiar with Paul, his history, uh, his ministry, his past life, and things like that. So uh, I want to take some time to acquaint ourselves with him. If it's old news to you and you know everything about Paul, be patient with the rest of us, okay? Because I want to talk about him and give some more context to his life, his passion, and uh, so let me bring up some people perhaps to speed Paul. We know that uh, Paul's Jewish name was Saul, pronounced in the Hebrew as Shaul. Probably explains why they wanted to call him Paul, okay? Um, I've read, I've heard uh, from people that know more about uh, the original language than myself that the Greeks struggled saying Shaul. Uh, there was a transliteration of uh, Salas, sal Salas, and then it sounded a lot like Pallas. And uh, I don't know if Paul was okay with that. The name uh, Paul means little one. Uh, and men typically don't like to be called little man, uh, except when they're two and three and four. So I call Asher little man. I don't call Isaac little man anymore. I'm trying to stay on good terms with him. But uh, yeah. So anyway, I don't have a Greek accent. And so I don't know if all of that's true or not, but uh, phonetics, as you know, they're difficult from one language to another. And if you've seen me try to speak Spanish, uh, you know that's, that's the truth. So uh, Paul was from the city of Tarsus, which is located in southeast Turkey, uh, which was in the area known as Cilicia. Okay? Paul was trained uh, as a Pharisee at the feet of a man named Gamaliel, one of Israel's most famous uh, rabbis to this day. Uh, that's Acts 22.3. Uh, so real quick, the ancient sect of the Pharisees would be uh, fairly equivalent to the ultra-Orthodox Jews today. 
uh, who adhere rigidly to what we call rabbinical Judaism. It's the Jewish faith on steroids. The Pharisees clung adamantly to the first five books of the Bible, uh, which contained the law of Moses. But the, the Pharisees erred both in their interpretation and the practice of the law, which simply led to contradictions and violation of the law itself. Over time, uh, as we know from history, they started out with good intent. They were kind of the guardians of the scriptures and, and the direction of the, the moral uh, climate of the nation. But over time, they lost sight of what they were really wanting to affirm, and they ended up becoming religious hypocrites. And uh, the Pharisees, as we know, these were the great enemies of Christ in the Gospels, and they became the great enemies of the truth of the Gospel. And they were, of course, instrumental in having uh, the Romans crucify Jesus. Now, as a young Pharisee, zealous for the law of Moses and the nation of Israel, Paul loathed just the idea of Jews becoming Christians. He loathed it, he hated it. And uh, in Acts 7, it tells us that Paul consented to the brutal murder of a Jewish Christian named Stephen. It's all in the text there. Stephen is introduced to us in Acts chapter 6 as this one of the first deacons in the church who then became this, this mighty uh, apologist for the Christian faith. And, and it was his, his apology, his, his defense of the faith that got him in trouble with the, um, the Hellenistic Jews, those, those Jews that had been brought up in Greek culture. And in the story there, there's some symbolism that is very significant. The passage says that all of the witnesses laid their outer garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who is Paul, Acts 7, 58. Paul was the overseeing religious authority who was endorsing the stoning of Stephen, which, as we learn from the rest of the New Testament, he was actually taking pleasure in the, 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 the murder of this man. He later recounted the, the event, saying, and when the blood of Stephen was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Acts 22, verse 20. But for Paul, the stoning of Stephen was just the beginning. It was sort of a catalyst. It was like throwing fuel on the fire for him. And so according to his religious zeal, he requested authority, written authority from the Jewish high council that he might hunt down and imprison Jews who had converted to Christ, Acts 9, 1 and 2. And the council was all too happy to harness Paul's energy and his hatred to that end. Luke reported, and having received this authority, he began to persecute Jewish Christians to the death, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women, Acts 22, 4. And by coercion, he would try to get them to blaspheme the name of Christ, uh, which is essentially to recant the faith. And those who would not blaspheme or recant the faith, they were put to death. A decision which included Paul's favorable vote, he says. Acts 26, 9 through 12. Maybe you remember Jesus warned, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. John 16, 2. A thing that Paul believed very deeply with an intensity that was unmatched by his peers. And the slaying of Jewish Christians only fed into his religious insanity. And not content with purging his own nation of Christianity, 
He was compelled to go on beyond its borders. Paul confessed that this raging fury of his compelled him to hunt down Jewish Christians in foreign cities, Acts 26, 11. He confessed that it was driving him mad that his own people would stoop to this Jesus. But it was on his way to a city called Damascus. It was out of his way. It was, it was some 200 miles north of Jerusalem. And then on that road, everything changed. As he approached the city, his progress was interrupted by someone that he thought was dead, someone that he had hoped was dead. It was Christ who had died for the sins of the world, but God raised him from among the dead and restored him to heaven. And on that road, Paul was blinded by the glory of Christ when he appeared in the sky over him. And Paul, of course, fell to the ground. And then he heard the voice, Jesus' voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think not only did he lose his blindness, but all the blood ran out of his, his head. And then Jesus said, now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Acts 9, 4 through 6. I love that. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And during three days of blindness and fasting and praying, Paul waited for a reluctant Jewish Christian named Ananias to come to him. Of course, he was reluctant because Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest and chain and deport men like him to bring them back to Jerusalem and stand before the council. But Ananias went, being instructed by the Lord to lay hands on Paul that he might regain his sight and to baptize him in the faith of Christ Jesus, whom he now was a follower. And Jesus told Ananias that he had chosen Paul to carry his name to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel, Acts 9, 13. How dare you doubt that God can save the most stubborn? The account of Paul's conversion is recorded in Acts chapter 9, 1 through 18 by Luke. It's recounted by Paul himself in Acts 22 and Acts 26. I encourage you to read that. Now, all of this you know, is strange, seeing that Paul had recently been chosen to destroy the name of Christ and persecute those who lived by his name. And now suddenly, abruptly, his life was under new management. Go to the city and you will be told what you're to do. Even stranger still is the fact that Jesus had died for Paul. He died for Paul, who had made himself the great enemy of Christ and his people. All of which proves that Christ's sacrifice is available to everyone, no matter how sinful and rebellious they are, or how opposed to Christ and his people they might be. You know, Paul proclaimed that Jesus died for the sinful enemies of God, Romans 5, 6 through 11. He came for his enemies. He says that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 3. Peter affirmed that God is not willing that any should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance, even men like Paul, 2 Peter 3, 9. And John the Apostle declared, and Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. Don't give up praying for people. 
Don't give up sharing. There's too much evidence that God enjoys saving people that look difficult to him. Okay? And Paul then said that God used him as a pattern to demonstrate that if he would save me, he could and he would save anyone on condition that they repented and trusted in Jesus, 1 Timothy 1.16. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? If God would scrape Paul off the bottom of the barrel and make him his beloved and give him a place in his kingdom, what is holding you back? You have everything to gain, but Jesus uh, paid the penalty for all of your sins. You have everything to gain, but if you reject him, you will pay for your own sins forever. So abandoning your sin and following Jesus is the only rational recourse, as Paul learned on the road to Damascus that day. I mean, just imagine for a moment if Paul struggled up to his feet and said no. I don't know what would have happened. I don't know. But following Christ is the only rational thing. John says that if you receive Christ, he'll give you the right to become the child of God, John 1.12. But if you disregard his call to repentance, Jesus says you will perish forever, Luke 13.3 and 5. It's time to trust and follow Jesus. So Paul, the enemy of Jesus, came to faith, and we learned that he immediately started proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus, Acts chapter 9, verse 20. That is beautiful. That's beautiful. The one who formerly hated Christ came to love him. Paul said, everything that was gained to me, I have considered as loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also consider all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Before his conversion, he was willing to kill those who profess Christ, but afterwards, he proved many times over that he was willing to die just to preach Christ. He said, I'm a debtor to all men. He said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul risked his life everywhere he went. Why? Because every doubt that Jesus was the Son of God who died for our sins and defeated death by his resurrection, they were banished that day on the road to Damascus. There was no way escaping it. Jesus was alive, and he was Lord of all. And Paul knew, he told the Romans, that I was appointed to bring all nations to obedience to Christ because he is alive and he is Lord of all. Amen? So he said, I will preach. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Paul now belonged to him. Because of Jesus, Paul went from a raging lunatic who spilled the blood of the church to being known by the church as their beloved brother, Paul, 2 Peter 3.15. He went from breathing out threats against the believers to calling them his beloved, his longed-for brethren, his joy crown, Philippians 4.1. He went from cursing them to giving thanks for them always and praying for Ephesians 1.16. Does that sound like a conversion to you? Yeah. It's really interesting in the climate of the West right now, uh, no conversions allowed. Everybody's digging up everybody's history of what somebody in their 70s said in high school and and, uh, allowing for no change, for no redemptive anything. But you know what? That's not the church. We reconcile all people through repentance and faith in Christ. You know, Paul said, "I, 
I don't consider anyone according to the flesh anymore, you know, in the faith. He says, I don't even judge myself. He says, it's all gone. I'm a new creation. It's really sweet. This is Paul. And, and it's the same Paul who penned this letter to the churches in Galatia, whom he discipled in the faith during his first and second missionary journeys in that province. So think of it. To receive a letter from Paul, how sweet that would be. Could you imagine the energy, uh, maybe not to the Galatians at this time, uh, but let's say to the Philippians or to the Ephesians, but just the excitement, the energy. Uh, the pastor has received the letter. He's informed the church that on the Lord's Day this week, we will be reading it to the church. And that's when the pastor finds out how popular he is versus how popular Paul is. Attendance is, I once attended a, a missionary conference, never been to it before, but I learned that their attendance was normally a few thousand. And uh, then when a friend of I and I went to it, Robbie Zacharias was speaking. And uh, there was standing room everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, this is the Paul who wrote. This is the same Paul that um, continued to preach the gospel and plant churches in spite of great opposition until he was finally beheaded in Rome because of the faith. Nothing could stop him but death. But he really hasn't been stopped because we have all of his letters and they continue to transform people and culture, things like that. So now, obviously, there's more to say about Paul. I think that will do for this morning. Uh, I encourage you to read his whole story if uh, some of that is new to you. His story is in Acts chapter 7 through 28. And then uh, read his letters as well, Romans uh, through Philemon, just to know Paul and give context to his life and writing. So here in Galatians 1.1, uh, Paul, he personalizes the letter with his name, but he attaches to his name the office of apostle. He was Paul, an apostle. Okay? An apostle uh, is someone who is sent. It's literally what the word means, sent one. Uh, an apostle is a representative who bears all the authority of the one they represent, the one who sent them. And I think that's interesting or ironic, perhaps, prior to Paul's conversion to Christianity, he was sent out with human authority from the Jewish high council to persecute the church, to do their bidding. But Paul, um, rather, he was the arm of the council to execute their will. But after his conversion, he was called by Christ and sent out by him with divine authority to preach the gospel and lay the foundation of the church. This is his second apostleship. But he's under new management, right? New mission. Now, when Paul used the term apostle, he used it in a specialized sense, not, uh, we might say, in a general sense. Uh, he even clarifies saying that his apostleship did not originate from or through man, as in a human institution like the Jewish High Council, but it came through Christ himself and from God the Father. He's saying, I was commissioned and sent out by Jesus and the Father. He didn't get a certificate from a church or seminary. He wasn't ordained by a religious institution, which would only provide him with their authority. Paul was appointed as an apostle by the authority of heaven. And therefore, Paul carried with him, and he spoke with ultimate authority, as all apostles like him did, like him did. An apostle of this kind, or we might say of this caliber, had to meet certain biblical requirements. No one could just take to themselves this office and then carry with it the authority of Christ. They could not do that. 
In the scriptures, we're told that an apostle of this sort had to be handpicked by Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1 Timothy 1.1, and 2.7. And here in Galatians 1.1, Paul says, my apostleship is unique for that reason. It didn't come through man. It came from Christ and God. Another one is that they had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. It wasn't optional. They had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. They had to actually see Jesus after he rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 and 15, verse 8. They had to have performed the signs and miracles and mighty deeds unique to apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and then we see it again in Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. Those just seem to be important details. Ever seen anybody do that? Their apostleship needed to be recognized by the other living apostles. Galatians 2, 9, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. You know, these biblical requirements are necessary to ensure that not just anyone takes this office to themselves and then attempts to speak for God on all matters concerning the Christian faith. It's to ensure that. And these requirements guarantee that there are no apostles of this sort alive today. There are none of this sort. This particular office with its divine authority ceased with the death of John the Apostle who died at the end of the first century. Office closed, office closed. We believe as evangelicals, uh, Bible believers, that the faith of Christ was fully delivered to the saints through the preaching of the apostles and their writings, Ephesians 3, 5. And the very foundation of the church was fully laid by, their, by them in their writings, Ephesians 2, 20. And therefore, there's no need for apostles of this caliber Presently, um, one of the things that the Mormon church loves to put to the world is that we have a living apostle. No, you don't. You have your apostle. doesn't go anywhere, even though the word means to be sent out. But he's not an apostle of this sort. Okay? Every individual today who claims to be an apostle of this caliber is a cult leader, if, if anyone is following them. In fact, every group today who claims to have Apostles of this kind are a cult. Okay, that it would include, it's certainly not limited to, the Mormon church, uh, the apostolic movement, uh, and maybe uh, this will create some controversy in the church, but, but Bethel Church in Redding, California has now elevated itself to cult status. I would love to engage in conversation with you regarding that cult uh, after service. And then, of course, there are a host of others. All of these groups teach abhorrent doctrines. They contradict the scriptures, and they have unquestionable leadership. But it only makes sense. If they're an apostle of Paul's caliber, they do have unquestionable leadership. Their writings and their preaching cannot be questioned because it comes with it divine authority who, among us, can question such a thing. You understand? These are cults. The authority of the church today and its officers is purely determined by the accuracy uh, of our interpretation of Scripture and the precision by which we apply it. Do you understand? Our authority is based purely upon a proper interpretation of Scripture and a proper application of it. As long as we handle the Scriptures correctly, Paul says that church leadership can exhort, rebuke, and instruct with all Authority, Titus 2.15, but, but apart from a legitimate interpretation of Scripture, we have zero authority, right? I can't just use the Scriptures how I like. As I've said before, you know, Judas 
went and hung himself, the Bible says, and Jesus said, go and do likewise. Some people use it that way. Uh, All cults use it that way. We're not permitted to use it that way. The scripture says all of those things, but every text must be controlled by its context. We must interpret it rightly, okay? We must apply it correctly. We need to understand that when the apostles preach the gospel and when they pen their instruction to the churches, they alone, they alone came under divine inspiration of God's spirit who so moved upon them that they could not error, that they could not error. Paul said that all scripture is theopneusto. It literally means breathed out by God. And all that is breathed out by God, Paul says, through his apostles and prophets, is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training for what is right so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Peter affirms this. and He says that prophecy, which all of scripture is prophecy, by the way, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or literally carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. That is why we call the Bible, what? God's word. God's word, yeah. The apostles and the prophets were the instruments that God used to communicate to his people. And yes, he used their personalities and writing styles and everything else. He didn't remove the human nature of it all, but he certainly ensured through the Holy Spirit that his word was communicated clearly and without error, and it carries with it all the authority of heaven. You know, Jesus promised the apostles that they would fall under inspiration in order to lead them into all truth, John 16, 13. And the fruit of that, of of the Spirit leading them in all truth, is the New Testament, the New Testament, brought to us by the apostles. If you have questions about biblical apostleship, I'd like to talk to you. I know that there's some confusion about that. I get asked about it pretty often, actually twice in the last month, and uh, it's a good thing to wrestle with. It's a good thing to be informed about. Uh, I will tell you, if anybody tells me that they're an apostle of Paul's caliber, they will not be speaking in this church because they are not. They are not. Back to our text. This, so Paul's parenthetical statement in verse 1 Uh, regarding the origin of his apostleship has a context that becomes clear after we've read further into the letter, okay? Uh, Last week, when I introduced the epistle to you, I mentioned the Judaizers, uh, these Jewish religious false teachers who had infiltrated the churches and then they spread their doctrine and teaching among the people. But, But there's more to this In order for them to spread their false doctrine, or rather, in order for their false doctrine to be embraced, they had to sow doubt in the churches regarding the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship. You get it? They had to diminish that in the people's eyes. They were challenging Paul's authority by saying he was simply appointed by man, or self-appointed, rather than by Jesus and God the Father, And therefore, because his apostleship is of human origin, he has no authority in the context of Christian teaching. What he says to you is void of divine authority. He does not speak for God. and Therefore, you should not listen to him. But we, of course, we're apostles, and you should listen to us. And see, some in the church of Galatia believed what these false teachers were saying about Paul, and they were embracing their false uh, teaching, which 
which is a false teaching about the gospel. And here's the problem. If Paul does not possess divine authority as an apostle, the Judaizers are right. No one should listen to him because he's a nobody. But if he is an apostle of Jesus, what he teaches comes directly from God and everyone should submit to his instruction. Now somehow, Paul had gotten word that the Judaizers had infiltrated the church and cast a shadow on his authority, which has provoked a response from him. And you could get a response out of Paul for those reasons, as the Corinthians know. Amen? And it begins here. In the very first verse, Paul comes out swinging. He's swinging. Paul, an apostle. And I want you to understand this. It didn't come from man. It came from Jesus Christ and God the Father. Let's just get that straight right now. He comes out swinging. But he also has the rod of correction. We might say he's got a boxing glove on one hand for the heretics, and he's got the rod of correction on the other hand for the Galatians that are getting caught up in this. So Paul is once again, he's put in a position of defending himself while confronting the disciples. It's very similar to 2 Corinthians, but the circumstances are a little different. But be that as it may, Paul's going to give a very hearty defense of his apostleship uh, in the letter. But it's not for his own sake. It's for the sake of these people that he dearly loves. See, unlike these Judaizers, Paul has sacrificed much to go to them. He's risked his life. Um, In Galatia, he was stoned. And after he regained consciousness, he got up and he walked right back into the city. He says, no, the disciples are in there and I'll go to their defense, and I'll keep preaching the gospel. The Judaizers never had these problems because of the message they brought. We will get into that later. But Paul says, because of the very message that I preach, these are the things that happened, and I'm not going to stop doing it. So the boxing gloves, the rod of correction, it's for their sake. It's definitely fatherly correction and sternness, but he loves these people, and he wants to protect them from the pitfalls and the dangers of legalism. Uh, something that I think some people get a little caught off guard by Paul's language and his sternness. And I think it's because we don't understand that this message brought by the Judaizers is not a matter of, of secondary import. Paul is going to go through this letter and say, no, this issue has eternal consequences. It's not to be played with. And so Paul, he doesn't come with kitten gloves. He comes sternly. He comes on very strong. Let's look at verse 2 real quick. How much time do I have? i got a few minutes. Paul says, All the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, if you remove the, the parentheses out of verse 1 and put it uh, with verse 2, it would read, Paul, an apostle, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. That's how Paul's other letters begin. But the parentheses was special. <laughs> it was special. So with Paul are a number of Christian brothers. They're all unnamed. Now, usually Paul throws some names out there. He doesn't throw them out here. It may be that they're not named because they were the ones that actually brought the bad news to Paul, and and Paul didn't want their names in the document that they would be uh, shunned or in trouble when they get back home. But that may not be the case, because in in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, Paul mentioned that some from the household of Chloe had come to him and told on the Corinthians. So he wasn't afraid to tell on them, so Who knows what's going on here? Um, I don't know. Uh, Anyway, this is followed by Paul's usual greeting, verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace was the typical greeting of the Greeks, though of course the concept of grace had greater meaning 
in Christianity to the church, for its source was divine, and it was extended to the believer through the cross of Jesus. And the concept of grace here refers to God's favor, which cannot be earned by the recipient. It can only be received and enjoyed. And by the way, that goes for all of the grace of God. Some of it's not earned, and some of it is just given. All of the grace of God is given freely. It's not only true of the grace we receive for salvation, for by grace you have been saved. It's also true of the grace that follows salvation for daily living, to where God is conforming us to Christ's image. Peter said that we grow spiritually by grace, 2 Peter 3.18. And Paul, of course, as we've mentioned in the past, uh, in Hebrews, and it's going to come up in Galatians as well, Paul said that grace disciplines us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, instructing us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present excuse me, godly in the present age, and what most people leave off is that grace also causes us to look forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So listen, if you're not looking forward with great anticipation for the lover of your soul to return, you are obstructing God's grace in your life somehow, okay? You should be looking forward to his coming. Okay, I was second second, because I'm ready to check out whenever he gets here. Titus 2, 11 through. And then the greeting of peace was common, of course, to the Jews, uh, which was said, you know, shalom, uh, which already carried with it rich meaning from the Old Testament. But its true significance, you know, comes to fruition uh, as it's experienced through faith in Christ, through whom, you know, all of the, the promises of God and all of the things that are assured to us uh, they come to us through Christ. And, and if you don't have the assurance of his promises, if you don't have the guarantees of his grace, there's just no peace. You understand? If you don't have the assurance of God, there's just no peace. I'll tell you, right now people need peace. The peace of God that surpasses knowledge. But anyhow, it's through Christ that we, we have the experience, the acquisition and enjoyment of grace and peace. Verse 4, it says, Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, remember, this is introductory to the book, and I would really like to talk especially about some of these terms like age and uh, its relationship to evil and um, all of that. I'll talk to you briefly about it. He begins in verse 4 by saying, Christ who gave himself for our sins... Uh, it's still in the context of this grace uh, from God that was given, and it says it only came through the substitutional uh, atonement of Christ. It's the only way to obtain this particular kind of grace. Uh, grace of this sort was merited for us by Christ, the, the payment of his blood at Calvary, the precious blood. So grace, of course, cost us nothing to receive it, but it cost Jesus everything to give it. Now, in the text, it says that he didn't just die for our sins, he died to deliver us, that is, to rescue us from this present evil age. Now, depending on your translation, it can say age or world, but then when you go to the Greek, there can be sometimes a couple different words uh, that are being translated the same. This one is eon, the other one typically used is cosmos. So here is the eon, this age that we live in. 
which uh, perhaps you've noticed is evil. It's so evil that we live in. Jesus, through his atonement, has rescued us from the evil age. It's the same age that Paul lived in, same that we live in. The age has to do with the moral standards of our time and the things that it values. It, it, it really is, the age is a moral domain. It's a moral domain. And as you've probably noticed, this age, this moral domain does not exist passively in the world, but is aggressively evangelistic. It's influential, it's oppressive, and at times it can be even coercive. It's always recruiting. It's always indoctrinating and speaking persuasively. It's in everything and it's all around us. Have you guys noticed that? It's a moral realm. And this moral realm has leadership. It has leadership. Paul says that this evil age has an evil leader who, calls, who he calls the God of this age, who is Satan, who is Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's the mastermind. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, it says that the serpent was the most cunning of all of God's creatures. Not cunning in a good way, cunning in a bad way. His, his trickery, his, his slyness. I was going to use another word, but a family here has that last name. And the mastermind, he's governing all the moral confusion. And man, who is sinful by nature, is happy to comply and to cooperate with it. So the times we live in are evil. They're evil. But you've probably noticed that Jesus has not rescued us out of it, right? Because we're still here. But he has rescued us from it, okay? From being fooled by it. He's redeemed the soul. Through salvation, we might say the Holy Spirit has turned the spiritual lights on, so to speak, allowing us to see this world for what it is. And he has empowered us to walk contrary to its influence and its desires. He's done that for us. Paul says that we were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, Ephesians 5, 8. So he's, he's rescued us from the world, from being entrapped by it, from being sucked into it. Jesus left us in this dark world, as we know from Matthew 5, to be a light in the world, to be a witness of Christ, that others might be rescued also. And then Paul says that all of this was according to God's will, and God's will is always wise, and it will always accomplish his ends, his planned, orchestrated, and revealed end. Yeah. Now, in the context of the peace of God, I'll tell you, nothing gives me more peace than knowing that, that the end is planned, and in route to the end, it's being orchestrated, and since the beginning, the end has been revealed. And myself and every believer in Christ, Paul says to the Ephesians, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. It is yet to be realized by us, but from his eternal perspective, he's already enjoying it. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. So you want to talk about having peace in the midst of a chaotic world. Only God can grant that to you through the truth of his word. And the end is planned. Your end is planned. From now until then is being orchestrated. And since the beginning, it's been revealed. Amen? There's peace in that. There's assurance. Verse 5, he says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To the Father. You know, when we look at the wisdom and sovereignty of God through just the lens of 
uh, his redemptive plan, it's, it's revelation in scripture. As, you know, as it comes through the revelation of Christ, his atonement, it's just so clear why glory belongs to him. He's established a final course of action for the world, for us. Everything determined by him is going to come to pass. And I love this whole thing with Paul's conversion. You know, just as he interrupted Paul's course of action to direct him in his own will, he will sovereignly interrupt the world's course of action and bring it all into the conformity of his will and his redemptive purposes. And we as his people have been safely secured in those purposes. So truly, the glory of God stands above everything, and our lives should be intentional to that end. Amen? All right, well, uh, next week, I will be here, but I'm not going to be. Mike Strobach is going to be teaching, and just before I came up here, he forbade me uh, to tell you what book he was teaching out of. So I really want to tell you now, but I'm not going (laughs) to. I'm not going to. So when I return, uh, we're going to get into the body of Paul's letter, and we're going to get heavily into the, the nature of the true gospel. Okay? So please read ahead, um, and we'll discuss it. If you would, please stand, and we'll pray, and I'll get you out of here. Thanks for putting up with me yet again for another Sunday. Do you guys like doing worship after the service? Good. All right. We'll keep having you back. Let's pray, and then after worship, you can be dismissed. Lord Jesus, we we love you, and we thank you for, Lord, the story and conversion of Paul. We thank you for Paul's apostleship, and that from him, through him, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we have his word, your word. We have instruction, we have light and truth. Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would prepare our hearts for what follows next in the book, as we look deeper into the gospel itself, the very thing by which we're saved and redeemed. Our lives have been purposed, Lord. And so just help us to understand. And Lord, I pray for uh, Mike this week in his preparation for this mysterious book um, and his mysterious application from it, that it would prove to be a benefit to our church. So Lord, we love you and thank you. Just help us worship you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.